You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I am Hashem. Why does Hashem need to introduce himself? Why does Hashem need to introduce himself to Moshe Rabbeinu? Hashem just spent a whole week in this intense dialogue with Moshe Rabbeinu at the burning bush at the Sneh. All of Perak Gimel, all of Perak, most of Perak Dalit. <laughs> go down, I don't know if I should go down. I'm telling you you should go down. Redeem the Jewish people, I don't know if I'm willing to redeem the Jewish people. You can speak, I'm a stutterer, Aaron will take your place. What's going to be? Back and forth, back and forth. Finally Moshe agrees to go, goes back to Yitro. He's finally in Mitzrayim. They're about to start. This this portion is the portion of the plague. Seven out of the ten plagues are in this portion. Seven out of the ten makot. <coughs> and now Hashem says to him, Ani Hashem. Doesn't really make a lot of sense. What does this mean that Hashem is introducing himself? But it gets weirder. Because then it says, Hashem lo I appeared to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov as the God known as Shin and then a Dalit and then a Yud. Right? One of the names of God, so we try not to pronounce it unless it's in the context of Pasuk. But uh, the name Hashem, I never revealed myself to them as Hashem. Now that's pretty strange, because if you look in Parsha in Sefer Brejit, it's hard to, to count how many times Hashem reveals himself as Hashem, Yudke Vavke, that name, Yahweh, right? To Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, right? Hashem It's Hashem, Yudke Vavke, that reveals himself to Avram. And I could spend 10 minutes now detailing all the different places that the name Yudke Vavke appears in Sefer Bridget to Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. So, what does this mean? Right? I did not make known to them the name Hashem. Vigam, and also, want you to know, Hakimoti briti itam. lahem I have, what does Hakimoti mean, Lahakim? To raise up, to establish, to fulfill, Lakayem. I fulfilled my covenant with them. To give them the land of Canaan, at Eretz Megurehem Asher Garubah, the land of their their dwelling where they dwelled. What are we talking about? <coughs> Eretz Israel. So Hashem says, "I am Hashem. I never let Avram Yitzchak Yaakov know I was Hashem, and I fulfilled the covenant to give them the land of Israel." And He's telling him this in Egypt as He's about to unleash the plagues. Ask me an obvious question. Obvious question. Why? Well, why is always a good question. That's a high school question. I don't know, but just say why and see if we'll go somewhere. Come on. Obvious question. Ah, oh, they're still in Mitzrayim. What does it mean, Vakimoti et Briti Itam? What does that even mean? Like, what's the fulfillment of the covenant? When would it make sense? When would it make sense for this verse to appear? Out of curiosity, say for Yeshua. You know, as they cross over the Jordan River, 
by the way, if it happened then, I'd say, what do you mean? He hasn't fulfilled the covenant yet. They, they still have to conquer the land. So you know when they finish the conquest, I'd say, well, they haven't fulfilled the conquest yet, but they haven't given out the Nachla. So after seven years of Nachla, when everybody has his portion, I, not everybody gets their portion in Sefer Yeshua. In fact, if you look at the borders of Israel as they're defined, we never get all the portions. Not all the tribe get all their portions, so we never fulfill the breed. So it's okay that this makes no sense here, it makes no sense anyway. In fact, if there was ever a period of time that you could make a case for, for saying Hashem could fulfill this Pesach, it would be now. I fulfilled my Brit, you survived, you've come home. Okay. By the way, obvious question here. What do we obviously have to ask? What do we have to do? What term do we have to define? A Brit. What's a Brit? What's a Brit? It's interesting. Um, I, I had the privilege to share uh, the idea of Brit Milah with, the Shana, with the, some of the alumni this week. And now we gave a mitzvah cheer and we had a topic about Brit Milah. And we talked about the story and the Brit, but nobody ever asked me how to define the word Brit. <laughs> Funny. Good. We're getting somewhere in Shiva, right? What is a Brit? What other word could you use besides a Brit? Shua. Avtacha, Neder. There's so many different words. Right? So we have to understand what a Brit is. So, why is Hashem introducing Hashem's self? <coughs> why does Hashem say that He never revealed Himself as Hashem, as that name, Yud, the Hei, the Vav, and the when He clearly has? <coughs> what does it mean that God says that I fulfilled the Brit when it hasn't been fulfilled to give back Eretz Israel here yet in Israel? We're still in Egypt before the plagues. And what's a Brit? Okay. There's something wrong here. Right? So what does this come in response to? Very often when you look at Rashi, so you see that Rashi is always interested in the context. Smichut parshiot. Very often you'll find a Rashi says, Lama nismacha, I don't know, uh, you know, Lama nismacha shmita tzel har sinai in parshat bahar. What does shmita have to do? In fact, that's such a famous Rashi, it's become a modern day expression. My Shemitah at Har Sinai. What does Shemitah, the sabbatical year, have to do with the giving of the Torah at Har Sinai? That's the, the rabbinical equivalent of, I like peanut butter, do you ski, right? It's the same idea, right? Okay. So Rashi is always interested in the context. And if you get deeper into learning Torah, then you begin to automatically look at the context. So this obviously comes from somewhere. If you look at the end of the previous Parsha, Moshe's actually respond. Hashem is actually responding to something that happens at the end of Parshat Shmot. Now, what happens at the end of Parshat Shmot? This is interesting, right? Moshe finally comes down. He goes to Paro. Why does he go to Paro? Why does he go to Paro? Because God called him to go to Paro. Why did God tell him to go to Paro? Because he has to go to Paro and say, "Let my people go." Agree with me, that's, that's a strange scenario. If Hashem wants to take the Jewish people out of Egypt, they're out of Egypt. You know, like, this whole journey makes no sense. No, I don't want to take it out right away. Let's have some fun. It's very strange. One plague won't do it. Six plagues won't do it. Not, we, we need the tenth. Right? There's a journey here we're going to have to understand. Now, you're Moshe Rabbeinu, and Moshe Rabbeinu comes down, and he goes to Paro, because that's what Hashem said. And he says to Paro, let my people go. And what does Paro say? No. Why? 
Because Hashem says already the burning bush, right? I'm going to harden his heart. He's not going to let you go. But something else happens. Not only does Paro not let the Jewish people go, Paro decides to make it more difficult for them. What does he do? You remember? No straw. How do you make bricks? You take straw, you mix it with water, dirt. Go find your own straw. Oh, now life is so difficult. Not only do I have to make bricks, not only do I have to build pyramids, not only am I throwing my babies into the river, I gotta go find my own straw. This is literally the straw that broke the Jewish people's back. Pshat. Is that a rabbi's joke or what? Thank you. Right? Okay? So, the Jewish people give Moshe Rabbeinu a hard time. So the Jewish people run into Paro, or uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, or possibly the Shotrim. Let Hashem judge you. This is in Parakhei Pazar Chavala, 521. Let Hashem judge you. Let God judge you. You've, you've dried us up. You've made it. This whole thing is stinky. You've given a sword into their hands. You're killing us. <coughs> now, it's Moshe. I, I, it's an interesting question what Moshe expected. Hashem says they're not going to let you go. But certainly Moshe didn't expect this. How do I know Moshe didn't expect this? Because what's the next thing he does? Pazuk at the end of Parashat Shmo. Vayashif Moshe l'Hashem vayomar Dunai lama reut alama zeshlochvani So Moshe asks God two questions. <coughs> has two contentions. Lama hareota l'amazeh Why did you make it difficult to this people? Number one. Velama zeshlochvani And why did you send me? This is a legitimate question. First of all, I can understand if it's going to take a while for the Jewish people to get out of Egypt. I don't understand. But Moshe could say I understand. But that I should make it more difficult for them? And if you're going to make it more difficult for them, then what would you send me for? What's the purpose of this whole game? So what does Hashem say? Says Moshe, Ever since I came to speak to Paro in your name, <coughs> it's gotten worse. And you didn't save your people. By the way, this is a very difficult question because if you look in Perak Dalad, okay, remember the famous Bris story that some of us just spoke about? Moshe goes down, he almost gets shechted because he didn't give his son a Bris Mila, whatever. So right before that story, in Perak Dalad, Pasuk Chafet, just a chapter earlier, Moshe Rabbeinu is still in Midian. And God gives him his last command before he leaves to go to Mitzrayim. Tell Paro that God says, My son, the firstborn Israel, Israel is the Bechor. And I will say to you, Hashem says to Moshe to say to Paro, Send my son, the Jewish people, that they may serve me or worship me. He will refuse to send out the Jewish people. And I'm going to kill your firstborn son. All the way back in Midian, before this whole journey starts, Moshe Rabbeinu is told that he's going to tell Paro, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Which means that until Paro's firstborn son is dead, we're not getting out of Egypt, right? That is Pshat in the Pasuk. You can look this up. So how come Moshe Rabbeinu now 
is struggling with the fact that the Jewish people haven't left. Hashem tells them they're not going to leave. So what is Moshe Rabbeinu really struggling with here? There are two things he's struggling with here. What's the first? Yeah? Pardon? Why it got worse. I understand it's not getting better yet, but why is it getting worse? Okay. And what's the second? Why'd you send me? Moshe has two issues. How could you make it bad for the Jewish people? Like, why are you causing the Jewish... Moshe is and beginning his journey as the representative of the Jewish people, and he comes before Hashem. He's the ultimate shlich tzibur. He's the, he's the representative of the community. Why are you making it difficult for these people? Why does Moshe say this? Because Moshe cares about the Jewish people, right? But then he says the second thing. And why did you send me? If already you're going to make it, what are you, what are you wasting my time for? Now let me ask you a question. Hashem now responds to this. Now you will see what I will do to Paro. I was just waiting for you to get annoyed. Now we're going to get him, right? Now you'll see what I'll do to Paro. He's going to send them out with a strong hand. He's going to kick them out. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So Rashi here points out, quoting the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Talmud, here, now you will see, with an eye, not atah, you, but now. So the rabbis note this. What does it mean, now you'll see? So one way of understanding this is, you weren't seeing it yet, now you're going to see it. The other way, the rabbis say, no, 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 this means... Now you're going to see something, but later you're not going to get to see. What are you going to see now? What are you not going to get to see later? So Rashi quotes the Gemara, You question my actions. Unlike Avram, when I told Avram that Yitzchak would be the future of the Jewish people, and then I told him afterwards, offer him up as an offering, which is impossible. He didn't question me at all. He didn't even struggle with this. But you did. You're struggling with my ways. With what I'm doing to the Jewish people. So now, right? You'll get to see what I'm going to do to Paro. But you're not going to see what I do to the seven nations when the Jewish people enter Israel. You're going to get to see the exodus from Egypt. You're not going to get to enter Eretz Israel. The Gemara has in this story, in the contention that Moshe has towards God, the foundation of the fact that Moshe does not enter Eretz Israel. That's fascinating. That's not shot in the Torah, but that's fascinating. So Moshe asks two questions. And Hashem says, you question my ways. Unlike Avram, who didn't question my ways. <clears throat> so, something that Moshe did was mistaken. But Moshe said two things. So Chazal say, one of the things that Moshe said was okay, one of them wasn't. Right? Now remember, Moshe asked two questions. One, why does Hashem make it bad to Jewish people? How could the Jewish people suffer? This is, this is the, the fundamental question. <clears throat> Where was God during the Holocaust? Why are Jewish babies still being thrown into the Nile? How could it get worse? And the second question, what did you send me for? Like, what are you wasting my time? Now, if Hashem holds Moshe accountable for one of those statements, but the other one is apparently valuable, which one would you say, obviously, is the statement that's problematic? Why me? And that would make sense, except that Chazal don't agree with that. 
you look in the Ramban, if you look in the Gemara, the why me question is not a problem. It's the where are you question that's a problem. So I want to understand this. So just to summarize, we have now five questions. Okay? Number one, of the two questions that Moshe asks, why is why me okay? And where are you and why are you redeeming the Jewish people, which I would think would be about the Jewish people, not okay. Why does Hashem introduce himself now to Paro? What does it mean that I never revealed myself as the name Yudke Vavke to Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov when clearly he did? What is, and now I have fulfilled my Brit when I haven't? And what is a Brit? All right? You know, if you take a walk through the old city, some of you may have seen this, some of you may have even seen this with me. There's certain places in the old city of Yishlein that are really powerful. And there are two personally that speak to me more than anywhere else. One of them is the Churva Square. And uh, a few weeks when parents come on that Shabbat afternoon, if you're here, so I'm going to give an optional city tour to the guys who want to, you can come with me there and see what I mean. But there's another place, which is probably the most mind-blowing place that's easily accessible in the entire Jewish world. Okay? And I'm going to describe to you exactly where it is because you don't need me to take you there. Right? You walk out of Oraita, you pass Holy Bagels, the burnt house, right? You're heading towards the Churva Square. And at the Churva Square, you make a right and you'll come to a little playground. You know what I'm talking about? And you'll see this wall. Anybody know what that wall is called? The Chomarechava, the broad wall. Why is that called the broad wall? Because that wall... You know, I, I remember many years ago, we were in Rhode Island, and uh, we were taking a tour of the Turo Synagogue, and this tour guy was taking us around. It's an amazing place. And there's like one point in the tour where they lift up the bima. Remember I told you about this once? They lift up the bima, and there's a tunnel. This is, this is a show that's been around since before the American Revolution. Like, this is like a 300-plus year or something like that synagogue. It's an unbelievable thing. And you go to America, and it's old. You feel the age of it. And this tour guide is taking you around. And, and at one point, and you could see, she's like excited. She's going to show you something that will blow your mind. This whole big bima, it's like the size of our bima, she lifts it up on a hinge. The whole thing lifts up very easily. And there's a tunnel, and it smells like musty. And there's stairs going down to this dark tunnel. Right? And she says when they built this synagogue, they built a tunnel to escape the show because that's where they were coming from. In their world, there might be a time where all the Jews would be gathered and surrounded and they would need to escape. And you're standing there and you're thinking, like, how many crusader Jewish communities would have been saved if they had a tunnel under the bima? And she starts talking and she's saying, like, George Washington, you know, sent a letter. American revolutionary soldiers came and prayed in this synagogue. And you feel like, wow, this is like history. And Yonatan, who was like, oh, three-fourths the time, he said, Abba, didn't you say... Right, and she says, it's like 300 years old. He looks at me in a little bit too loud a voice. He says, Abba, didn't you say your office is like a thousand years old? Right? And all these people are like, oh, right? And, and of course, that's modern architecture. Like, we're sitting in a place a thousand years old. It's nothing. Like, we're, we're 20 minutes from the Kotel. Right? We're 20 minutes from 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 from, from Chorvot that are, that are, that are 2,000 years old. But that's nothing. Because this wall, this wall's over 2,700 years old. <laughs> And Sefer Malach in the Book of Kings describes the story and says that Chizkiyahu Melech understood that the Assyrians were coming. 
And the Assyrians mustered the largest army the world had ever seen. It was 185,000 men. Okay? Herodotus, by the way, who was the historian of Alexander the Great, describes this story. He calls it an army of 200,000. We'll go with Sefer Malachim. I once read an article by Professor Sperber from Barilan, who has an article about comparative like coinages and numbers, etc. What was a shekel in the time of Tanakh worth today, and so on and so forth. And he compares numbers, like 300 men of Avram, which is supposed to be such an army, 400 men of Esau, why is that such a big army? Because if you compare the population of that time to today's population, in today's relative population per capita, it would be a much bigger army. So how much is 185,000 men in the days of Assyria? Right? You're talking about Lemineham. There's a big debate of dating, but we'll use the common date, even though I'm not sure it's 100% correct. 722 before the common era. That's what the historians and archaeologists believe. It might have been a little less. 2,700 years ago. Just to give you an idea, 800 years later, when the Roman legions surround Yushalayim and bring her to her knees, they will do it with 15,000 men. And that's a massive force. This is 185,000 men. So he says, in the population of 722 before the Common Era, 185,000 men today, in 1990, when he wrote the article, would be, you ready for this? 45 million men. 45, that's unbelievable. The, the, the only example I could think of that even remotely relates to this is the Korean War. When the Korean War broke out in 1950 on the 38th parallel, there were 60,000 U.S. troops stationed along the border. Two million Chinese, <coughs> two million Chinese troops crossed the border in 48 hours. The joke going around the U.S. Army at the time was, what do you do when the Chinese cross the border? Run! Like, what are you doing, many people? Like, you don't have bullets. 185,000, 45, can you imagine 45 million men surround your shrine today? I mean, what would you do? You know, like, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to guide your tank and tell him where to fire. Hit the 595th from the right. Like, what, what, how could you do that? So Chizkiyahu understands what's coming. This army cut a swath through the entire known world. They, they wiped out kingdom. They, they, they hit the kingdom of the north. Right? The Aseret HaShvatim. This is the famous Galut Aseret HaShvatim. Right? It was a much mightier kingdom. They had a treaty with the Phoenicians, the Tzidonim to the north and what is today Lebanon. They had a seaport. They had an army. They themselves, the Aseret HaShvatim, had an army that did conquests. The Assyrians wiped them out in less than a year. They burned the city of Shamran to the ground. Not long ago we rediscovered it. And then Saragon. The Gemara calls him Sancherev the general of the Assyrian army, Sancherev Milashon Churban, the destroyer. And he sets his eyes south towards the pearl of the Middle East, Yushalayim. By the way, you can see a, a, a visage, you can see the image of Saragon, of this same Sancherev, and you don't have to go, and you can see it on the gates of Nineveh. And you don't have to go to southern Iraq, where Nineveh was, the Assyrian empire, to see it. You can actually go to London. Because the British, cultured British, they had a great minhag. You know, they had this great empire, and they went around the world, and they found things that they liked. So they took them, you know, they took them home. And they put them in the British Museum in London. I remember one year, I managed a longer story, but I went to visit, I was there with my wife, and I always wanted to see this museum. We go in, uh, the, the Rosetta Stone is there, like it's a famous museum. My wife had a really good comment. When we came out, she said, you know, they should put a big plaque above the entrance of the British Museum. Great hall of theft. Like, it's unbelievable. And you can see the gates of the city of Nineveh. It's unbelievable. And there's a picture there that describes the story, the archaeologists will agree, of the exile of the ten tribes. 
It's unbelievable. But you will not see this story, because it doesn't end as well, for Assyria. Chizkiyar. Chizkiyar was a melech, he was a navi, he was a righteous king. And Chizkiyar understands that Saragan is coming, Sancherev is coming, so he begins to repair. And one of the things he does is he broadens the wall. He understands that, that, that they're not ready, that the walls have fallen to disrepair. There are you know, thousands of Jews who have come refugees and they have no army and, and they build it up and the, and the Navi describes a part of it in Malachim part of they build up this wall as a broad wall they don't have time to build it properly so they put stones on the outside and they throw stones in the middle they build it up on top of existing houses because there's no time there were some houses built along the wall they just use those to build up the wall and you can go to the broad wall and if you stand on the right side of it you can look and you can see part of the walls Mama's sitting on houses it's unbelievable Right? And they finished building it just in time. You can find this. They found Assyrian arrowheads that they carbon dated. 2,700 years. Unbelievable. And then the Assyrian army arrives. 185,000 men surround the walls. And things go from bad to worse. And Chizkiyahu Melech is walking the walls one night, according to the Navi, and he overhears two women talking. And they're contentious. And he sees they're arguing over something. And he gets closer. They're arguing over a bundle. And then he sees it's a dead baby. And then he sees that they're arguing over dinner. That's how bad it's gotten. They have no food. They're starving. They're dying. There are approximately 30,000 Jews. It's a very small kingdom, the kingdom of Judah at that time. The Aseret Ashvatim are wiped out. They're scattered to the face of the earth. The governor says, Samcherev destroys them. They're gone. All that's left of the Jewish people, there's no army to speak of, 30,000 Jews inside Yerushalayim, surrounded by the mightiest army the world has ever known. What do you do? What do you do? You can't fight. You have no army. You can't surrender. They just want to wipe you out. There's nowhere to run to. There's nowhere to hide. They wouldn't commit suicide, because then it wouldn't be a good story in the Navi. So what do you do? And by the way, I want you to understand this. 2,700 years ago, we are looking at the final solution of the Jewish problem. This army wiped out every kingdom known to man of that day. We should not be here. We shouldn't. So what do they do? You know, there's an interesting point in this week's passage, And this will help us understand this whole story. There are seven makot in this week's parsha, okay, Dam Tzfadeh Akinin, Arav Dever Shvin, Barad, and then in next week's parsha, Bo are the last three, okay. What are they? Arbe, the locusts, Choshech, Makar Pechora. Okay. So you have seven here and three there. Think Haggadah and ask me a question. Seven in this week's portion. Three in next week's portion. Obvious division. Think the Haggadah and ask me a question. Somebody. Should I give you a hint? Yeah? So how do we divide them? Ditzach, Adash, Be'achav. In the Haggadah, Barad is the next grouping. But it's not here. So there's something going on with Barad. I want to suggest there's something 
the last grouping are the most, this is when God really lets them have it. And Barad, the hail, takes us to a different stage. And so it's the end of this week's portion because it takes us, once you pass Barad, you're in a different sphere. And that's why the Tana who divides in that way says, Barad is a different level. So what is it about Barad that's unique? There's something very interesting that happens in Makat Barad. This is Perak chapter 9. Okay? After Vayacha Barad, right? The, first of all, Hashem comes to, to, to Paro, or Moshe comes to Paro, and what does he say to him? He says, um, um, right? I'm going to rain down this hail tomorrow. And it's never been like this in Egypt. Now you've had blood, you've had frogs, you've had lice, you've had, you've had pestilence. I mean, if Moshe says it's coming, it's coming. Take everything you have, all the cattle, take it out of the field. Anything out in the field, the cattle, is going to be destroyed. Bring it into the barns, right? And who doesn't pay attention to God leaves his cattle in the field. That's unbelievable. That's just unbelievable. Like, how much work does it take to bring your cattle into the barns? You know this is coming. Paro leaves his cattle in the field. Now, is it because he can't show that he's believing Moshe? Or is it because... He doesn't believe. It's not clear. What happens after Barad? This is unbelievable. I had made a mistake. I sinned. Hashem Hashem is righteous and we are wicked. Hashem, pray to God, blah, blah, blah. What would you call this? Which stage of tshuva? The first stage, what's the stage? Hatati. I made a mistake. Maybe even harata regret. Now we know that Paro doesn't get to that third stage. It doesn't happen. Can't do it. But he's so close. What is it about Barad that's transformative? Why in the plague of Barad does Paro finally get that Hashem runs the world. So there's something interesting that happens in the plague of Barad. And you may remember this from the Medrash. You know, when Moshe, when Aaron turns the Nile to blood, what do the magicians, the wizards of Paradu? They do the same thing. Remember this? <clears throat> Medrash. They bring lots of frogs. What do the magicians do? They bring lots of frogs. Then comes the lice. Now, for whatever the reason, Paro can't do the lice. His wizards can't do the lice. But there's something interesting about the lice. They can't make lice come out of the blue, but lice itself is not a big miracle. What's interesting about the lice is there's so many of them. Right? And historically, I once asked Josh Berman this question, historically, very interesting, that the Egyptians had a thing about lice. Okay? If you look in the hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt, you'll see two things. You'll see that most of the people are... What's missing here? They're bald. You ever notice that? Ancient Egyptian pictures, they're bald. 
The wealthy you have here, they have these combs in their hair. You can look this up online. Those combs are all factory combs. They have all sorts of myrrh and ingredients that melt in the sun and bathe the body in some sort of fragrance. Right? And it was actually designed to ward off the lice. So they've got a thing about lice. So lice is not uncommon. The fact that you're seeing lice, they were freaked out by lice. But you see, that's not so huge. See, there's lice. We know there's lice. And if you go through the different plagues, there's a pestilence that kills the cattle. Okay, it's amazing it happens right now. It's amazing it's killing all the animals. But we've had pestilence before. Barat is the first plague that something happens that's impossible. What happens in the hail that's impossible? There's fire inside the water. That is not possible. Nature is turned on its head. The whole progression of the plagues, right? Blood, water turns to blood. Water is the Nile, the god of Egypt, and it becomes death. The Egyptians worship nature. They worship the power of nature, the beauty of nature, the cruelty of nature. They live in a world where nature rules. And things are natural because they're possible. When the impossible becomes possible, when nature makes no sense, then Egypt by definition is wrong. And when you look at the Barad, you finally see that we don't, we don't get it. We don't really get it. We think we get it, but we don't get it. As long as, by the way, in our modern world of reason, science suggests that there's always a solution. There's always an answer. Right? There's a possibility. We figure it out. And if we haven't figured it out, we'll get to figure it out. But what if something came up that you actually knew was impossible to figure out? What if the impossible happens? If the impossible happens and science can't explain it, then there's something bigger than science. Right? And the difference between emuna, between faith in a greater being that we call Hashem, a source of reality, and paganism, idolatry, is the inability to accept the impossible. The best example I can think of is the mystery of, of the missing matter in modern science. Right? Penzias and Wilson showed in 1913 that the universe was expanding. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you can read lots of books on the topic, right? They discovered, they were, they were, they were studying star systems, and they saw that star systems seemed to have moved when they came back six months later. Now, movement was only like 100,000, 200,000 miles in the space of, you know, sort of in the scope of stars in space. That's almost nothing. But it's, it's noticeable. If you're, if you're tracking it, you can see it. So they become fascinated by this, and they come back to it again and again, and eventually they realize that star systems are moving. And then they start to track other star systems. They realize they're all moving, and they're moving at the same pace. And then they realize that as they're moving and expanding outwards, it means that they came from a source, and when they begin to track them, they realize they all came from one space. And that's how they come up with the theory of an expanding universe. And it's this theory of the expanding universe that eventually leads to the fact that there was a Big Bang, that there was this massive movement of matter. Einstein writes a famous letter when he sees this. He doesn't get to this until after World War I. The discovery gets delayed a bit because of sea travel and whatever. But eventually he says, I have not yet fallen into the hands of, of shamans and magicians because he understands that if the universe is expanding, then it must have started somewhere. There's an origin, there's a beginning. It's not just random space. And if there was a beginning, then there was a cause to the beginning. In the world he lived in, maybe there was a prime mover. That little thing we call God. So people start to have a freak out. Because if there's a big bang, then something must have caused the bang. There's a source, there's a beginning. And if there's a beginning, then it's not random. 
So they come up with a theory. They say, no, maybe the universe is expanding, but then it's going to contract. And then it's going to, you know, it's still a static universe, it's all random. It's just expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting. And so there's no real purpose to it. That's just the way the universe is. Okay. The only problem is, in order for that to happen, there has to be enough mass to create enough gravitational pull so that the universe that's expanding will eventually slow down and be pulled back into itself and contract again. And then, just like you squeeze something hard enough, it eventually goes out. The, the, the mass of energy will be so great it will expand again and explode again, and that would explain it. The only problem is when they measure all the known mass in the universe, don't ask me how you spend time measuring all the known mass in the universe. Slow day for some people. Not my idea of fun living, but whatever. They figure out that, that there's not enough mass in the universe. You would need almost eight times as much mass as they can discover in order for this to, to make sense. Right? Am I simplifying a complex context? Yes. Right? So, what they've discovered then is there is enough mass for this to work. Not a problem. It just means we haven't found the mass yet. And thus begins the search of the journey for the missing mass. And you can read books on this topic. Where is the, the missing mass? Is in black holes. There's one theory that says that behind every star is another hidden star. And you start to read these things and you realize the, 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 the grasping for straws in order to find the missing mass so that the universe didn't have a source in the beginning... Is that really the most logical explanation for the universe? And so at a certain point, I think Goddard, the head of NASA, finally stands up and writes a paper on this, gets castigated for it, and says, maybe the missing mass just isn't there. Maybe there is a source to the creation of the universe. Now, in order to buy into that, you have to change your whole world outlook. This is a very hard thing to do. You know, Shimon Peres, who I think was really a, a, an incredible president, uh, but a terrible prime minister, a complicated personality, but did a lot of good and did a lot of harm, and you could debate that. Politics is not today's topic. Had a very hard time owning up to one of his greatest, most tragic mistakes, which was the Oslo Accords. Right? Because the Oslo Accords created a certain reality, land for peace, we're going to make peace with the Palestinians, Yasser Arafat. It took a certain amount of time for people to start to begin to realize this is not the person to make peace with. It was very hard for him to admit that that was a mistake because, because then your life's mission is based on a flaw. It's a very hard thing to do. And by the way, to be fair, if I somehow found out that God doesn't exist and Judaism is all wrong, I'm sure I would find it hard to do also. But if you believe that's true, that's not a problem. So go back to Paro. Paro discovers that the entire reality on which he bases everything is a flaw. <coughs> and how does he discover that? because he sees that the impossible is possible. Chizkiah Melech brings together what's left of the entire Jewish people. They can't run. They can't hide. There's no one to surrender to. They can't fight. There's only one thing left to do. What do the Jews do when they have nothing left to do? They daven. They are mitpalel. And he calls them together in tefillah. And there's a miracle. That's how the Navi describes it. Herodotus says that a mass plague befalls the, 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 the Assyrian army and they all drop dead overnight. And I'll go with the Navi's version. It's Yad Hashem, but whatever. It's unbelievable. And you go to this wall and you stand there. And you know, it's too much to take in. So you pick one rock. 
Now, I remember the first time that I was in Poland. Some of us are going to go together again another month. And we get to Auschwitz-Birkenau, and they take you to the shed. It's a shed full of shoes. Thousands and thousands and thousands of shoes. And, and the person who, who was taking us back then, before we walked in, said, I just want you to understand, you can't take it in. You can't take in 15,000 shoes. And you certainly can't take in that that's just a small portion of the millions of shoes that the Nazis collected from human beings. So you know what? Pick one shoe. This is many years ago. And our eldest daughter, my aunt, was about 10 years old. So I did what any normal parent would do. I go into the shed, and I find a shoe. It was a red shoe. that was about the size of my daughter's shoe, and I start thinking about this shoe. And I start thinking about the fact that my daughter is the eldest daughter. She's the first child. She's the eldest granddaughter on both sides. She's the eldest great-granddaughter. She's the first. When she was born, there were six uncles that she had, adoring uncles. She got so many presents when she was born, we know what to do with them all. Unbelievable how much love was showered on this child. And you look at that shoe and you wonder, so what happened to all that love? And then you take a step back and you look at that shed of thousands of shoes and it blows your mind. And it breaks your heart. And then you come here and you look at that wall. It's too much to take in. So you look at one stone and you imagine 2,700 years ago. And the Assyrian army is coming. And Chizkiah Melch says, we've got to build this wall. And you don't have to build the wall. Run. Go into the desert before it's too late. And there's a Jew and he's standing up there and someone else is hoisting up a stone and they're building this wall. Crazy. What gave them the Emunah to believe that it was worth building a wall? And here we are, 2,700 years later. And where is Assyria? They're dust in the wind. And the Jewish people are still here. The impossible is possible. That's the message of Parshat Vayera. The message of Parshat Vayera. Ani Hashem, Yudke Vavke is the aspect of Hashem that we cannot possibly understand. Hayah Hashem was, is, will be. We could say it, we can't understand it. Ushmi Hashem lo nodati lahem. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, they never struggled with this question. They knew that the impossible is possible and the possible is impossible because it's all Hashem's world. So Hashem comes to Avram, this is what Rashi says, and says, your son is going to inherit the future. But now take your son and offer him up. That's not possible. Avram says, if it comes from Kosh Baruch Hu, I don't need to understand. I want you to understand. Avram Avinu does not have an answer for the Holocaust. He just says, Hashem created the world. I don't need to understand the Holocaust. Because I know it all comes from Hashem. I don't need to understand it. I can let go of the question. Moshe Rabbeinu comes down after 40 years in Midian and says, How could it be? And Hashem says to him, you're missing the point. The entire exercise of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is that the possible is impossible because the impossible is possible. That Hashem runs the world. That's the purpose of this whole exercise. And we'll finish off, that's the definition of a Brit. That is the definition of a covenant. Hashem comes to Avram and He says, Ki v'yishaki karela chazara. And you know what Avram says? It says, Avram says, You promised me a son, I'm 99 years old. That's the right thing. That's awesome. And then Hashem says, Right? I'm going to give your offspring this land. So all of a sudden, what does Avram ask? Anybody remember? How do I know I'm going to inherit the land? So all of them first say, What do you mean? Two minutes ago, you offered a son in 99, not a problem. Now you want to know how you inherit the land? 
So Salvechik is a powerful idea. And by the way, what does Hashem do then? Hashem says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'll answer your question, no problem. Take a bunch of animals, cut them into half, set them on this side of the road, walk through, see the vault. This is the most bizarre parak in the entire Torah. What's it called? The Brit? Ben Abtarim. The covenant between the pieces. You're going to walk through the pieces and the vultures are going to come and you're just going to walk through. So Salvechik says, what is that, Brit Ben Abtarim? That is the future of the Jewish people. The four animals there are the four kingdoms, Rome, Persia, Babylon, Assyria. You're going to be cut into pieces. The vultures are going to come, but somehow you're going to walk through unscathed. Because you think, what was Avram's problem? When Hashem comes to Avram and says, you're going to inherit the land, not a problem. I know that if I do my bit, and I'll keep doing my bit, then I'll merit whatever Hashem gives me. But how do I know my children, my children's children, my children's children? How do I know? Avram understands. Kids mess up. Who says they're going to be worthy of the land? Hashem says, no, no, you don't understand. You think our relationship is a relationship of Jose, of contract. Our relationship is a relationship of a Brit. The definition of a Brit is a covenant that cannot be broken. It doesn't have to make sense. No matter what the Jewish people will ever do, it will never be broken. Hashem will always bring us home. And we're sitting here, living testimony to that Brit. It is not possible that we are still here. It makes no sense. 2,700 years ago, we shouldn't be here. And here we are. And that's Va'ira. You know? You get to see a different reality. So here we sit. We're about to enter Shabbat in the old city of Yushalayim. In Eretz Israel, in the state of Israel. And we have our little foibles and the things, you know, my finger hurts and it's hard to wake up. And then you take a step back and you realize... We're living the dream. We're living the fulfillment of a prophecy from 2,700 years ago. Go to that wall. Stand at that wall. And realize that we are part of something so huge, so impossible, that there's just no other way to look at it. And our challenge is only what we do with that reality. little food for thought. Pressure for era. Um, just want to wish everybody the most incredible Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.